0: Well, 2024 will be the year of what? Will it be economic prosperity or economic downturn? Will we see peace in Ukraine and Gaza or uh, a worsening of those crises? Will we see a solution to the health of the rental market? A solution to mental health and its effect on the market? So whatever it is, this is the time of year in our newspapers and online where headlines and clickbait are filled with 2024 prognostications, aren't they? Some of them are merely advertising doled up as news, uh, but many of them will be well-researched, measured and wise predictions. Particularly in the realms of uh, finance and environment and geopolitics, there are trends and data that you can study and distill and utilise to make fairly helpful contributions to our 2024 prospects. But as sound as many of them are, you won't find one pundit out there who will stake their whole claim and career on their predictions for the year being absolutely certain. Even the boldest of editorials will future-proof their assertions of little phrases like, well, only time will tell, Uh Haha, And that can leave us a little bit frustrated uh, as we seek to plan our year out and make financial and travel and wellness decisions. We would prefer, I think, to have ironclad guarantees about clear directives for our year that leave us with no doubt. As Haggai draws his prophecy to a close this morning, we find that he speaks in unabashed tones about how things are now and how they will certainly be in the future as the Lord's house is restored. How can he be so certain? And what does this certain future hold? Well, this morning we will go on a three-step restoration plan of worship, house, and ruler as we examine Haggai's prescriptions for the future. Now, timing is everything when it comes to getting your message across, and that's true of Haggai's final instalment here in his little three-part prophecy tool that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. We're told in verse 10 of the timing that the word of the Lord comes to Haggai two months since the last time he spoke, where he spoke of the wonderful scenes that awaited the completed temple, when the Lord's glory would fill it once more, the heavens and the earth would shake and the desires of the nations would be met. That was a wondrous scene that John outlined for us last week. But in the two months since then, A new prophet has actually appeared on the scene in Israel, namely the weird and wacky Zechariah. And just a month or so before our passage today, Zechariah was not riffing on the glory of the temple. No, he was saying things like this up on the screen. He was saying, Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, This is what the Lord Almighty says turn from your evil ways and your evil practices they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. You see, Zechariah knew that the restoration of the temple, as remarkable as it would be, it was nowhere near as remarkable a feat as God's people listening to God's word and having their hearts restored to him. And so that goes some of the way to explain why Haggai chooses to close his brief prophecy career with a focus on the hearts of Israel and their need for restored worship. And the examples he chooses to focus on with meat wrapped in cloth and corpses, it's typically evocative language of a prophet, but it's also very telling of the need for that restored worship. In verse 11, you'll see that Haggai shifts his focus from Zerubbabel, the governor, from last week, and now turns to the priesthood. And while Joshua, the high priest from chapter 1, is not named, it would have been him and his gang that uh, Haggai was focusing on. I think we often forget that the Old Testament priesthood were not to be the ones who just offered sacrifices for the people. They were also supposed to be the ones who taught the law to the people, that would answer the people's questions of the law, that would offer wisdom uh, from God for holy living. The fact that Haggai has come and asked them a question about how to interpret the law is a sign that perhaps the priests had been failing in this part of their ministry. And like Jesus so often did, Haggai highlights well-observed customs and habits as he enters into his debate with the priests. He asks them whether holiness can be passed on through touch. Now, it might seem odd to us to speak of wrapping up meat in your clothes, but this is actually a normal part of the vow of a Nazarite priest. And most likely the priests and many of the other Israelites would have witnessed this in their time. After the Nazarite priest had gone off to sacrifice a ram, he would return with a a cut of meat that he'd wrapped in his garment. He would then reveal it and wave the meat to the people as what was known as a holy portion for the priest. It was a symbol of his holy set-apartness before the Lord, but it was also a token that he could keep and eat. It was a bit of a holy meal deal combo for the priest. Now the meat was holy. And it was deemed that the garment he'd wrapped the meat up in was holy too. But that was it. The holiness was not transmissible. If the priest then walked through the crowd or through a banquet table and bumped into bread or stew or wine or olive oil or anything else, that holiness was not passed on. The priests agree with this in verse 12. And so Haggai then moves on in verse 13 with another question. He says... If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. And so here it becomes obvious that uncleanness is in a different category to holiness. And the example is broader too. It's not limited to priestly affairs, but to anyone who has been deemed defiled or unclean because they've come into contact with a corpse. If that defiled person bumps into the bread or the stew or the wine or the olive oil or anything else, well, then trace particles of impurity are passed on. The priests say this at the end of verse 13. Yes, it becomes defiled. So Haggai then makes an equivalency that threads the needle of this argument about gruesome garments. In verse 14, he says, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, And whatever they offer there is defiled. See, unlike the limited spread of holiness, the uncleanness of the Israelites knows no bounds. One writer summed it up well by saying that Haggai's message is that uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. Whatever they offer there is defiled. What's the there of verse 14? Well, it's the temple. I mean, it's not even really a temple, though, is it? It's the ruined remains where they've put a makeshift altar together, they've cranked the priests back into their roster of rituals. But the priests are working not just with the carcasses of rams and goats, but amidst the temple's corpse. Contact with the corpse is a symbol of the limp and lifeless ritual of hearts that are not restored to worship the Lord wholeheartedly. That's why Haggai says in verse 14 that they are defiled not just in whatever they offer on the altar but in whatever they do the restoration of the temple had not been set apart in the people's hearts as their holy mission so how could they expect to be deemed holy in their worship of the lord their empty ritualism would see them go out from the temple's course and a a corpse and a, a super spreader event of defilement would be transferred to every other aspect of their life Now the good news for us, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus' conquering of sin and death and all that defiles us, is that we are not bound to these laws of consecration and impurity. We know in the Gospels that Jesus is always radically reversing the situation so that it's holiness that becomes contagious. He touches diseased hands, bleeding women, dead bodies, and not only is he not defiled, but he cleanses those he touches. He makes them more than holy. He restores them to life that they might now live a life of holiness. You might remember that garments of Jesus and even the Apostle Paul, they are touched at moments in the Gospels and Acts, and healing occurs. Defilement is removed. It's a sign of the uncleanness from within that Jesus has erased as he cleanses us from the curse of sin and death at the cross. But even when we have been made holy, when we have been set apart for God by having our lives bound to Jesus, we're still very prone to not offering our bodies as living sacrifices, of not living in true and proper worship of God. We let ourselves be conformed to the pattern of this world where worship of God is rarely discussed and barely tolerated. I mean, sure, we'll be here on a Sunday, We'll probably give to the ministry regularly too. But is our formal worship on a Sunday just as stale as the rest of our week, which is supposed to be marked by worship of God as well? Being passive as we gather, that feeds into our distinct lack of worship of God in other aspects of our lives, or of even realising that God has set us apart to worship him with all of our lives not just in this little ritual we call a church service. Our gatherings on a Sunday should be the high point of a week that has a liturgy, a rhythm of worship all of its own. Rhythms of holiness in personal time in God's word. Sustained times of prayer as well as the many messages of praise and request in our, our work, in our downtime with friends, our ordering of our accounts and our bills and our household, those moments of madness in managing the children's schedules. Then there's the regular sharpening, encouragement and refuge of meeting with other Christians throughout the week. Don't forget to sign up, bit.ly smallgroups2024. See, all these and more, these should be the beats and the melodies that are played in tune with worship of God that then crescendos on a Sunday where all of our week is brought before the Lord and we harmonise it with his living and active word so that we can be sent out and do it all again next week. This is the garment of true and proper worship that our lives should be wrapped up in, holy and pleasing to God. Now, under Haggai's ministry, God required that his people approach him in the temple with the blood of animals. God now requires that we draw near through the blood of Christ. While the form of worship would look radically different, the dynamic is the same. We approach God on his terms. Obedience is not optional. And that obedience is to be shown in all of our life and all of our lives together. Our worship together together must be a testimony to the world of our holiness and that holiness should be contagious and consistent in every other aspect of our lives. And we'll see that now as Haggai goes on to speak of the need for a restored house. In verse 15, Haggai returns to the catchphrase of his prophecy, give careful thought. He says it three times in just five verses here. Look at verse 15. He says, now give careful thought to this from this day on, Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. Haggai is drawing attention to this particular day when the foundation stones were to be laid. He is calling them to consider this as a line in the sand or a stone in the ground's work. were. What was life like before the foundation was laid? And what will life be like in the future? What will it be like from this day forward? the 24th day of the ninth month of the second year of Darius. The problem, of course, for us close readers of this text is that this is not the day when the foundation stone was laid, is it? We already know that work's been underway for some months now. Many stones have been laid upon stones. The altar has been operating in a a haphazard state since then. See, what appears to be happening on this day, as Haggai prophesied, was that some kind of foundation dedication ceremony is taking place. Some sort of symbolic stone laying, like a ribbon cutting, probably done by Zerubbabel, as Zechariah spoke about in our call to worship verse. And so the word of the Lord has come to Haggai on this day to draw their attention to the fact that although your animal sacrifice system has been restored, the people and the sacrifices they have been offering there were unclean. Their sin was so contagious that it actually polluted the sacrifice rather than being removed by it. For they had failed to dedicate themselves to restoring the temple with wholeheartedness. And for this reason, the Lord had been afflicting the land with diminished produce. See verses 16 and 17, he says, when anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Israel's half-hearted worship, their half-hearted obedience, has led to a half-hearted livelihood. As John helpfully explained for us in the first sermon, during Haggai's ministry, Israel were living under the Old Covenant, one of blessing and curse. If they obeyed God then they could expect to be materially blessed in the present. There was a direct correlation between their worship of the Lord and the circumstances of their livelihood, like their crop yields, their harvests, the possibility of natural disasters. This side of the cross in the new covenant, we don't seek immediate blessings for obedience. Instead, we look to the innumerable eternal blessings of the new creation. But as John reminded us two weeks ago, the similarity between us and Israel is that we need always to be considering how holy and obedient our lives are now in the present. Of course, when we experience downturns in relationships, or in our livelihood, or our health, our well-being, we know that there are many variables that are completely out of our control, and we should not bring undue blame and condemnation upon ourselves. We've got to be clear about that. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the evil and the suffering of this world, we should not view that as personalized targeted judgment from God. Nevertheless, our everyday circumstances, they are a window for us to glimpse into the larger purposes of God and to consider our heart and our actions. To consider if the distance you might feel with your spouse is the half hearted crop of a marriage that's not been cultivated around the Lord in recent times. To consider if the lack of satisfaction and enjoyment from your work is the downturned dividend of investing all of your sense of self and worth and direction into your paid employment rather than into your freely given vocation in Christ Jesus. I won't put hard and fast markers on those circumstances because they are going to vary by degree for each and every one of us. But the principle here that Haggai is drawing our attention to is put best by Robert File who says, to fail to see that the world of worship and work belong to and flow from the same God is to opt for a life where what we profess and how we live become increasingly divorced. This attitude, which in theory believes in the Lord, but wants to keep him away from the real concerns of living, always creates a low spiritual temperature and a complacent and apathetic mindset. So here then how Haggai calls us out of our apathy in verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, he says, From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, here we are again on that same day, and now with that same catchphrase, Give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. The Lord is calling his people to hear not just his prognostication about the future, but his declaration about the future. From this day on, he will bless them. This is a bold prediction indeed. Is there any seed left in the barn, Haggai asks. The answer would be no, not at this time of year. The 24th day of the ninth month would have been December, midwinter in Israel. All the seed has been sown. It's in the ground, needing to be tended. No one's making any sort of harvest prediction in midwinter. That's why Haggai says until now, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, etc., they've not borne fruit. There will be no signs of what kind of yield was about to come in. But it's on this day, in this moment, they are to give careful thought to their worship of the Lord in the present. He longs to dwell with them, to fill them with his glory and bless them. But that will be on the Lord's terms, not theirs. And so as they have dedicated the foundation, they are this day to dedicate themselves to the Lord. The people of Israel should not just rely on their skill and ingenuity for their prosperity. They should rather say that their prosperity is to be found in all of life when all of their life is in covenant with God. They've already sown their crops in hope. Now Haggai calls them to serve the God of hope who's going to bless them. Now we hold on to certainty of God's blessing in an eternal sense. But having eternal blessing as the goal is not licensed for us to neglect the present daily demands of our routines because these are also opportunities for us to express our faithfulness, our obedience, our holiness, our thankfulness for the many present blessings that we enjoy. In fact, when our head and our heart and our hands are all engaged to serve God, well, then we're more attuned to how he is serving us now in the present. More often than not, experiencing God's present blessing is simply about having our perspective altered so that the eternal bleeds into the present. It reveals God's abundance to us already. And then we are even more geared towards the blessings that do await us in eternity. And we're made all the more eager to serve God now as his spirit gives us power and perseverance to do so. Our temporary blessings now are future focused but God called Israel in their present and he calls us in our present too to tend to the worship of God in all that we do and leave the blessing to him both now and then so I pray that from this day on you may know more of how God blesses you but that is not all because in verse 20 Haggai gets a second wind and he delivers the word of the Lord again on the same day And this message is for Zerubbabel. And it underscores, I think, how central he is to this whole episode as the governor of Israel. His role as ruler also needs to be restored if Israel is going to experience God's blessing. Haggai repeats what he promised last week as he explains that he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. But there is a slight shift in focus from last week's chapter. In verse 21, God focuses on the destruction of foreign threats. Now Israel was in a pretty weak position geopolitically they were in that rebuilding phase they 're still being ruled by Persia, and there 's broader instability amongst the neighboring nations and empires. So to hear Haggai say that God is going to overthrow and overturn that language that 's reminiscent of the defeat of the Egyptians in the Exodus or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or the conquest of Babylon. That would give them great comfort in their circumstances, which, like their harvests, have looked pretty bleak recently. And at the end of verse 22, we hear that the horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. And that would fuel their understanding of God's providence, each by the sword of his own brother. There's, of course, the old phrase that evil begets evil, But so too, here we see that evil beheads evil. See, evil is parasitic of the good, but it's also inherently self-destructive. See, amidst the ever-increasing threat of those evil empires and agendas that surrounded Israel, they could be still and know that part of God's judgment of evil was to let evil run its course and eat its own young and we would do well to heed that comfort in a world where we feel increasingly marginalised as Christians. Of course, we want to resist radical progressive agendas that might threaten our ability to live a holy life. But we should also be aware not to succumb to the temptation of thinking that our agenda should be the militant destruction of one particular ideology. We need to remember that the, the goalposts shift so rapidly in our society, And when there are no ethical moorings, often one evil consumes another in order to survive. And so if we have put all our eggs into one ethical battlefield, only to wake up the next day and find that the hens have flown the coop, well then we can be left just as adrift as evil itself. Instead, we should speak the truth in love. And continue to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, knowing that God will build his kingdom as he sees right. This is not mere pie-in-the-sky pontificating, but it's tied to particular times and people and places. And we see that in the last verse of this prophecy. In verse 23, Haggai addresses Zerubbabel directly and says, On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord and I'll make you like my signet ring, for I've chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Three phrases are worth our attention here. Signet ring, chosen, servant. A signet ring was worn by a king. It, it bore his personal seal for imprinting on wax scrolls, etc. It was so precious to the king that he, he rarely took it off. Yet a couple of generations before, in the exile, Jeremiah the prophet, had said of King Jehoiakim of Judah that he was like a signet ring that the Lord refused to wear. This was God's rejection of the Davidic line of kings for their disobedience. But now Zerubbabel, who's Jehoiakim's grandson, well, he is to be bound closely to the Lord once more. The Lord will seal his decrees and his ways through Zerubbabel, for indeed he has been chosen. That's the language of a Messiah, a chosen or anointed one through whom the Lord's going to usher in the kingdom. That phrase runs all through the prophet Isaiah and it's often juxtaposed with servant. God's chosen Messiah would be a servant, not just of the Lord, but of the people of Israel. Zerubbabel was to be God's chosen servant through whom God's plans would be sealed. And he was. Zerubbabel was chosen by God to oversee the building of the temple, but not to usher in the kingdom of God. He did fulfill God's plans and would have put that ratifying seal of his signet ring on them. He was in the line of David, the one whom the promise of a forever king and forever kingdom was given. But Zerubbabel only ever reigned as a governor, not a king, and certainly not into eternity. So in many ways, Haggai's bold predictions kind of fall flat on that final note, except that all of Haggai's other notes were spot on. The temple was completed. There was a return to prosperity for a season. The priestly system was restored. The people rededicated themselves to the law. Zerubbabel proved to only be a flash in the pan, but he was still a vital flash in furthering the kingdom of God. As O. Palmer Robertson put it, the people of the exile had to return to the land and the temple had to be rebuilt in order to provide a sanctified theatre in which the great acts of divine redemption could be brought to completion. See, it was in the the mundane everyday of laying a foundation and a building uh, of a temple that was far less glorious than the one that had previously been destroyed, it was in that that God was slowly softening hearts of stone for a time when Christ, our cornerstone, would walk into that temple as the anointed one, the Messiah, to proclaim good news to the poor Freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That certain event was yet to come in Haggai's day. But the unfolding of those certain events in Haggai's day, under Zerubbabel, the little M, Messiah, that was crucial to the arrival of Jesus, the big M, Messiah. Haggai proclaimed God's word between two divine interventions, the end of the exile and the arrival of Jesus, the big M, Messiah. And in late January 2024, we are between the celebration of two other divine interventions, the incarnation at Christmas and the resurrection at Easter. But each and every day, until that great day, when the heavens and the earth will shake, we are always betwixt resurrection and return. These are the certainties that ground our hope and restore our worship. And so over morning tea, I would encourage you to think over this passage and ask one another this, what might restored worship look like for you in 2024? And my prayer for, for us all in 2024, that each and every day we may know with certainty that the Lord will bless us. Amen.